Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Just before we start this exciting episode of History Hack, a little shout out to say that we are on Patreon. If you head to patreon.com forward slash history hack, you can see all the amazing tiers which start from just £3 a month. We know you all do so much for supporting us and we are ever so grateful for that. But if you're able to give us a bit of help through Patreon, we can keep this podcast going from strength to strength. We all thank you for your continued support. And without further ado, hello and welcome to History Hack. We've got another fantastic serving of history for you in a cocktail glass of fun. I have two amazing people with me tonight. And I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by the marvellous Charlotte White, who will introduce our guest. Charlie, who do we have with us today? Today, we have got Abbott Kayla with us. She is an author and historian, and she's here to talk to us about prohibition, the United States noble experiment and subject of many, many of my favourite films. Hello, Abbott. Hello. Nice to be here. Thank you so much for coming to join us. And, Thanks for having uh, me. Oh, my goodness. And you're going to talk to us about your latest book, The Ghosts of Eden Park. Yes, and The Ghosts of Eden Park. And I should say, just to avoid any possible confusion, The Ghosts of Eden Park was written um, by uh, my other name, uh, my original name, Karen Abbott. From now on, my books will be under Abbott Kaler. So if you want to look up The Ghosts of Eden Park, it's under it's under Karen Abbott. And. If you do Google that one, we can guarantee <laughs> that Abbott is very much alive. So go, go, yes. go, go, go down that Google rabbit hole in, at your own leisure. There's definitely a story there. Yes, I, I did die, but I am miraculously returned. And uh, it's, it's, there's actually screenshotted evidence. So that's, that, that's good. Fantastic. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick this one off because I, I have read your book. I bet you very kindly sent me a copy along with a wonderful little caricature as well, which is on our wall just behind me, of um, Al Capone. I shall post a picture of that later. But The Ghost of Eden Park is about a very particular group of people. At the top of it is a, a remarkable, ruthless man, but we'll get to him in a moment, because I think what we need to talk about first is the Volstead Act, the 18th Amendment, which we know as prohibition, but what was the point of it? Because the point of it was very different to the reality. Well, the point of it, um, you know, and there's a long tortured history of how prohibition sort of uh, came to be in the United States. But the main gist of it was that it forbade people to manufacture, distribute and, and sell alcohol 
uh, unless, quote unquote, it was for medicinal purposes, um, which, of course, became a big loophole <laughs> that many people took advantage of. Um, and the protagonist in, my, in the Ghost of Eden Park most brilliantly took advantage of it. I think that that a few of us could say that that the occasional drink is is very very beneficial for medicinal purposes here in the UK. Um. <laughs> yes, yes, I think for medicinal purposes they they took it quite literally back then. And you know there were a couple of exceptions also for religious. Um, you know priests and such were allowed to use wine in this in their ceremonies. It was something that that people knew how to exploit uh, and and did so uh, quite brilliantly. Gosh. Did you did you know much about prohibition before you started work on your book, or has it been a sort of a labor of love and research? Well, I, I knew bits and pieces. Um, I'd always been fascinated by by Carrie Nation, uh, who was this uh, uh, anti saloon crusader. Um, this kind of remarkable, iconic woman who became famous for going across the country and smashing saloons with her big hatchet and her hammer and, you know, ga- you know, gaining headlines for the brute force she used in shutting down <laughs> saloons across the country. You know, there's famous pictures of her with her scowl, wielding her, wielding her hammer and, you know, all, uh, glasses, uh, the saloon mirrors and, and the, the bar stools and everything smashed in a way in the wake behind her. And so my entree into prohibition was really just through her. Um, and then I started understanding why, uh, why it started gathering force in the United States. You know, prohibition was a foolish law. You, you can't really legislate vice as, as we've learned over and over again in history, no matter how many times we try, you cannot legislate vice. But, but there were some legitimate concerns. Women were um, worried that their husbands were spending all of their money in the saloons. These women were poor and destitute. The children were um, going unfed and, and malnourished. A lot of domestic violence springing from alcohol abuse. Um, that kind of thing. So the Women's Christian Temperance Union really seized upon those issues to start gathering uh, momentum and support across the United States until finally uh, the Volstead Act was passed. That's a very simplified version of it, by the way, of course, that's like the capsule version. But it was incredible that it was a a very, it was a female-led change to the law. Yeah, there were there was a huge swelling of support of, of women across the country, um, and of course, many women as well, <laughs> who decided to take advantage and and uh, find their own loopholes. And many female bootleggers, I also became interested in, um, and how the women sort of adjusted, uh, adapted to the law, and used it for their own purposes as well. Especially with regard to smuggling alcohol, which um, we can get into. Originally being Canadian, basically all sort of large Canadian distillers and breweries now tripled their fortunes during Prohibition. <laughs> yeah, so not I think, surprising. Uh, I think was it Se- Seagram's went from basically being nobody's to one of the biggest distillers in the world because they're literally floating booze across the Great Lakes, which is another story itself. Um, <laughs> let's, let's get into the Ghosts of Eden Park. As a rule, anyone who calls himself in the third person, I tend to take against. But... <laughs> The sort of main, you've got a fascinating quartet of characters in this book, but George Remus is sort of the, the main focus of the book. Who, and he always called himself Remus. So I suppose let's phrase this question. Who was Remus and how did he get into the booze racket? Well, Remus 
and if I could start by just telling you how I, I became aware of him too, because mm. I, I think maybe some of your listeners will will appreciate this this history. But you know, I usually get ideas for my books from musty old archives or libraries or out of print books. Um, but I got the idea for the Ghost of Eden Park from television, specifically a television show called Boardwalk Empire, which was oh, on HBO it. for about five seasons. Yeah, if you're a f- fan of Prohibition, it's it's musty <laughs> TV. It's very binge bingeable. And there was a minor character named George Remus. And he was so innovative and cuckoo and weird. And he spoke of himself in the third person, say things like, Remus has the good stuff. You want the good stuff? You have to come to Remus. You know, we'd speak to Steve Buscemi's character and say things like, Remus finds you petty and intolerable. Uh, And I was like, is this guy for real? (laughs) Did he really exist? I knew that a lot of the characters were based on historical people, historical events, but I didn't know about Remus. And I looked him up and of course, George Remus was a real person. And he did speak of himself in the third person in real life. Uh, He said things like, um, this is going to be a hell of a Christmas for Remus. Um, And so many people want to kill Remus. My personal favorite was Remus's brain exploded. (laughs) <laughs> um, and, uh, and it turns out that the real George Remus' story was so much more dramatic and interesting than anything that they had uh, portrayed on Boardwalk Empire. And I just thought, you know, he would be a great uh, subject for a book. I suppose that's the one problem with Nucky Thompson in that is he's not as cool as Remus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no one was as cool as Remus. You know, and so and you asked me to tell his background. So Remus was a German immigrant. He came to the United States when he was a young child, maybe six or seven years old. Um, his uh, family was very poor. Um, his father was a mean and abusive alcoholic in Remus's own words. Remus had to quit school to help support his family. He got a job in an uncle's pharmacy. He learned the pharmacy trade. He studied for law at night. Uh, he became a lawyer. And eventually when, when prohibition came around, he started noticing that his clients had a new kind of, of case. Um, they were being charged with violating prohibition laws. And he decided to use his pharmaceutical background and his legal background to scour the Volsetic for a loophole. And of course, he found the quote unquote medicinal purposes loophole could distribute, sell, buy alcohol uh, for medicinal purposes. And he thought, what a farce this is. What a farce. And I can exploit this and I can make a killing. And he did. Within a year of starting his uh, empire, Remus owned 33% of all of the alcohol in the United States, which is just a staggering, staggering number. Gosh, that's amazing. So one in every three bottles was Remus's. Yeah. And, and he had a quite an ingenious method, how he operated his business. So he, the biggest, the biggest factor in his success, kind of a four-part system, um, he acquired permits to access all of the alcohol that was stored in government-owned warehouses. He could extract it legally, um, which was very important. He, he um, bought pharmaceutical companies and pharmacies in order to uh, sort of uh, use his pharmacy to extract those alcohol from the... So this was all legal, using the pharmacies to extract the alcohol from the warehouses. And then he had a transportation company and the alcohol would be sent off to be distributed into the legal medicinal market. But then he had another transportation company that would hijack those initial trucks, um, take all the liquor on those trucks and divert it to the illegal market and sell it at any price that he named. So basically, you know, Remus was robbing Remus to pay Remus. And he called this the circle um, because he was robbing Remus to pay Remus. And it was quite brilliant. He had an estimated worth of between 20 million and 40 million dollars. And that's not adjusted for inflation. That's in 1921. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's just really unbelievable. 
Gosh, he was the Jeff Bezos of booze. He was. That's a good way to put it. I think much more charismatic than Jeff Bezos. <laughs> so he was a he was a charismatic and attractive figure. He uh, he was married with a daughter, I understand, when he fell in love with Imogene. Yes. She's a fascinating woman, equally as fascinating as Remus. Can you tell us a little bit about Imogene before Remus? So Imogene also had sort of a struggle, uh, struggled as a child, had a difficult upbringing. Her family was poor. When she met Remus, she was estranged from her husband. She complained about her husband to him. He was a philanderer. He spent all of their money. He had a gambling problem. He spent money on other women. He was not taking care of um, his, his daughter. You know, Ruth was Imogene's daughter with her first husband. And she complained about all this to Remus. Uh, and he also had been having trouble with his first wife. And so they sort of bonded over these marital difficulties. And Remus actually offered to represent Imogene in her divorce case. And so the two of them sort of fell in love over, over their failed marriages. And they, they, they became a double act, didn't they? The, they, they, com- they this, this is terrible we're talking about. A rather notorious criminal. We're going to say they complimented each other's um, talents, which I. This is not <laughs> I a word I want did. to go to, but in this case, <laughs> it, it really is. Oh, I think I think there is no problem in saying Remus was incredibly talented. He was a brilliant man. Um, you know, he was he was also crazy, and we can so- certainly get into that a little bit. But he uh, he he was very savvy. He he had uh, very smart business instincts, and I think that um, he recognized that Imogene also had street smarts. They admired each other's. Um, sort of savvy when it came to to advancing themselves in the world in, in unorthodox ways. Remus had many nicknames for Imogene. Uh, among them was Prime Minister. He called her his Prime Minister, which was sort of a signal to show, I think, how he respected her advice. He would seek her opinion on business deals. He'd want her to weigh in. But Imogene only had one nickname for Remus. Uh, she called him Daddy, uh, which <laughs> to me at least signaled the kind of... Um, a kind of uh, uh, wanting on her part. She expected Remus to provide nice things for her. She knew he was going to be a wealthy man uh, and uh, she wanted to hitch her wagon to that and and take full advantage. And she really wasn't shy about expressing that. So I, I do think that they they really complimented each other in certain ways. It's a good way to put it. It's such an, a creepy early 20th century thing yeah. of calling your partner <laughs> daddy. I'm still, I, I still find that you know, incredibly- Incredibly it's very creepy. creepy. It's very <laughs> creepy. Yeah. And it's the only thing she called him. Oh, my goodness. So the uh, prime minister and her daddy, how big did their empire get when they combined forces? Well, she was an advisor of his, um, but but of course, he was the one that was really, you know, sort of in the nitty gritty of the business. Um, he would give her an allowance, of course, and she would often, you know, use her allowance to buy buy warehouse interests, to sort of invest in his deals. You know, whenever he would buy something, she would sort of want a piece of it. As I said, you know, uh, he eventually came to own um, very early on. He was a, he became uh, successful very quickly. Thirty three percent of all the alcohol in the United States. He bought a mansion in Cincinnati. Uh, they moved from Chicago to Cincinnati, which was a very strategic move, um, sort of um, within 300 miles of all of the warehouses in the United States, the warehouses where the, the pre-prohibition alcohol was stored. Um, so it was sort of easy access for him, also had a good transportation system, could get him to Chicago, New York, um, and other cities very quickly. 
Um, and they bought a mansion in the fanciest neighborhood in Cincinnati, which is called Price Hill. And it was very important to both of them to start to infiltrate society, not just Cincinnati society, but they wanted to sort of be recognized around the country as people of great wealth and taste and um, sort of establish themselves as, as uh, connoisseurs of, of the finer things in life. Uh, and that was very important to both of them. And, and with that in mind, they, they began extensive renovations on this mansion and prepared to sort of have a societal debut um, at, at a big party in this mansion, which they eventually do. To great effect, a party that's still spoken about today. Quick sort of chat about Cincinnati, because this is as much of a character in your book as as any of the people, actually, because it is basically the center of bootlegging. <laughs> um, it's 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 you could say that. I mean, of course, Chicago and New York were important, but the Cincinnati was very centrally and strategically located. Um, Remus picked it very carefully. You know, he was already in Chicago. Um, and I think he realized that not only he would have less competition in Cincinnati because Chicago, of course, was rapidly, <laughs> rapidly uh, had a gangster population growing there. And with Remus's whiskey certificates and and all of his legal permits to access that warehouse whiskey, it just really made sense for him to, to position himself there. And and um, he became sort of a folk hero to the city. You can imagine all of the various jobs that were lost during Prohibition, you know, glass and bottle makers. Um, transportation, bars, saloons, brewers. In fact, the, the mansion that Remus bought in Cincinnati uh, had was owned by a former um, brewer uh, who went out of business because of prohibition. And Remus uh, employed a lot of people in the city. I think the count was at, at some point employed 3,500 Cincinnatians, um, which was, you know, made him one of the most significant employers in the city. And, and of course, he became a folk hero and some someone that people really respected and and when he opened up his house you know neighborhood kids would come to the pool he would he would he wanted to have a baseball field for them to come and play he was somebody who really wanted to make himself accessible and um respected in in, in his community as well you, you mentioned you mentioned the party which people yes. still talk about and, and this I, is and what I, I wanted to ask about because <laughs> yeah, i it, it it twigged and for some reason i'm trying to be good in following our script and we should we we need to talk about the party because that party is something else so the party um it, it was uh it occurred it was at new year's eve 1921 the renovations of the mansion had just been complete i think the renovations in today's money equaled about 12 million dollars so not insignificant renovations they decided to have a big new year's eve bash Imogene made up these wonderful invitations. I actually have an image of the invitations. They were in a, there was one of them survived and is in a historical society right outside of Cincinnati. Kind of remarkable. Uh, and they distributed the invitations to, uh, you know, important people all across the country and in Cincinnati. And they, one of the things that people remembered about this party were the party favors. Uh, there were diamond stick pins for every man, engraved watches for every man. Every woman got a brand new 1922 car, you know, in the years, <laughs> decades before Oprah, you know, you get a car, you get a car. <laughs> there was a thousand dollar bill tucked under everybody's plate. Um, which is the equivalent of, you know, you and I reaching under our seat right now and, you know, finding $14,000. There in a move that was remembered also for, for you know, years later, uh, he lit his guest cigars with $100 bills. And mind you, this is in an era when the average annual, annual salary was only $1,200. So it's just an absolute staggering display of wealth. And I think the party was also one of the reasons that, that George Remus is often called the inspiration for Jay Gatsby. And, uh, you know, there's all these apocryphal stories that F. Scott Fitzgerald met George Remus 
when Fitzgerald was stationed in, in uh, Louisville uh, during his military service. And there's no hard evidence that the two ever met. But the, I think that the parallels between Gatsby and Remus are conspicuous. You know, both men owned a string of pharmacies. Both men were in love with a mysterious woman. Both men had these lavish mansions. They threw these wonderful parties. And, you know, as, as Fitzgerald wrote, um, Gatsby sprang from a platonic conception of himself. And I think that, that both men had sort of a sense of wanting to belong to a world that didn't quite welcome them. You know, there was sort of a sense of melancholy that really infiltrated both of their lives. Um, and I think that's true of, of Remus and, and Jay Gatsby. That is some party. And to be fair, that's what, two years into Prohibition? That's not even... Oh, yeah, it was it was very early on in Prohibition. It was how quickly he was able to accumulate his fortune. And, uh, you know, of course, he invited all of the, the Tafts. The Taft family is big in Cincinnati, of course, William Howard Taft and former president, um, other other people, and, and none of them came. So while Remus's party, you know, made headlines, he did not quite crack uh, his, uh, realize his dream of, of sort of uh, gaining acceptance from these, these more socially, uh, socially prominent families. And it, it was that sort of connection with the Tafts that kind of, kind of made Remus think he was probably a bit more bulletproof than he actually was, wasn't it? I think so. I think that he thought as long as he had money, as long as his name was being thrown about as somebody with power, he had the same level of, of immunity from the law that say even the president, you know, the entire White House at the at, at this time, the Warren Harding administration was full of people who were flouting prohibition laws. And it's kind of like there was a general sense that that, of course, this was the law, but we don't really have to adhere to this. And Warren Harding would have poker parties in the White House with booze. Um, it was it wasn't a big secret. And uh, of course, Remus had his own liaison in the White House. Uh, somebody who helped him get uh, whiskey certificates in order to get the alcohol out of the warehouses. You know, they would get him legitimate government certificates to do this. Um, and Rebus just paid handsome bribes to facilitate all of this. And it was working out very well for him because the, the, all the politicians really <laughs> had no interest in enforcing prohibition at all. Gosh, but he did become a target for prosecution in some way. How did the the government or the was it just law enforcement that went after him if the executive branch aren't interested in prosecuting him how does he become sort of one of the top targets to bring down during prohibition well that brings me to another of my favorite characters in the ghost of eden park uh, a fantastic fascinating woman called mabel walker willenbram um, she was only 32 years old when warren president warren harding appointed her to be the assistant attorney general of the united states uh, she had never prosecuted a single case in her career. She was only five years out of law school. She had no idea what she was doing. Um, but he was, you know, and all of the, and Warren Harding and all of the bosses, Harry Doherty, the attorney general of the United States figured, you know, let's put the little lady in charge. She doesn't have much experience. She'll probably sort of flail about and be ineffective and just be sort of intimidated and not really, not really, you know, uh, bring any teeth to this role. And of course, Mabel Walker Willenbrink gets in there and she surprises everybody. She just begins kicking ass. Um, she was in charge of all prohibition cases across the country. And she soon realized that the main guy that she needed to go after was George Remus of Cincinnati. She kept hearing about uh, the operation that was going on there. She actually heard about his wild party. Uh, a Cincinnati resident wrote directly to the attorney general's office to complain to her about it. 
He decided, you know what, I uh, I am going to make George uh, Remus, you know, public enemy number one in my new uh, role. Um, and, and she was ambitious. Of course, she she wanted to sort of, sort of prove herself. And I found that Remus and, and Willebrand sort of interesting foils for each other. You know, they both grew up in, in very poor circumstances. Um, Remus had to quit school when he was 13, and she only began her form of schooling when she was 13. Remus also, I found this fascinating, was a teetotaler who never had a single drop to drink of alcohol in his life. And Willembrandt, Willembrandt before prohibition, was a lady who liked her California wines. Um, She was a public defender out in California. She grew up around California wine, loving California wine. Uh, When she was an adult, she didn't grow up in California. But when she, as soon as she moved out there and began her public, uh, her life in the public sector, she was a public defender. Um, She she was somebody who really enjoyed her, the California clarets. And and she reluctantly gave that up um, because she was not a hypocrite. And, and, you know, if she was going to be the the prohibition czarina, as Remus called her, um, (laughs) she was going to, she was actually going to follow both the letter and the spirit of the law. Wow. She must have been the only one not drinking in the Harding White House. <laughs> I think that's probably very accurate. <laughs> yeah. From your reading, do you do you think everyone was drinking during Prohibition? Oh yeah. I mean, you know, aside from the the, the hardcore teetotalers who who push for the law, but it's no secret that Prohibition was not a popular law. Um, and of course, you know, illegal booze was everywhere. Speakeasies were everywhere. Some of my favorite research, um, uh, was, was into the, the sort of speakeasies and how they operated. I actually came across a 1924 speakeasy menu from a speakeasy in Chicago, um, and all of the cocktails that they were making back then. My favorite was called, uh, the corpse reviver, um, (laughs) which I, I have never actually tried. I have not. Which one? Which corpse eight. Oh, eight corpse survivors. Yeah, corpse. I think number corpse because a friend of mine's a bartender, and oh. he got me onto absinthe with corpse survivor number four. Ooh, I no, I do not oh. know. I do not yes, know, but it, now I need to try that. Does he use it as a hangover cure? Is that his recommended hangover cure? Yep. Yeah. It's basically it's it's so strong. It's basically the ultimate hair of the dog. It's an amazing cocktail. But there's like a whole. Yeah. Ra- In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Them in like <laughs> different stuff. They're great. Oh, so interesting. I wonder if they they developed them over time or if they had that many back then. I I don't know, but I, I knew it was used as a as sort of hair of the dog hangover cure, which I I just love the name Curb Survivor. Mm. But yeah, there's there's absinthe one. There's like a bourbon one. There's yeah. a brandy one. Okay. Um, <laughs> there's a gin one. It's fantastic. I guess we oh, have to uh, try them all, and maybe hopefully not in the same sitting, but. <laughs> Oh we could do a flight. We yes, won't we do a flight. <laughs> <laughs> we'll need a corpse survivor after our corpse survivors. Yeah, we, we will be corpses. Yes. Um, <laughs> God. Uh, yeah, Mabel Walker Willebrand is utterly fascinating. I do love, though, that when you Google her now, you come up as people also search for. Oh, I did not know that. <laughs> yes. I've learned a long time ago to stop Googling myself because nothing good comes up. <laughs> find out you're dead yeah exactly Um, (laughs) 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So... Let's let's move let's move on to to Mabel's right hand man because you know I think I think it's pretty fair to say that Mabel was a, a pretty upstanding lawyer. She she didn't get into the naughtiness that a lot of the others. Her ace of agents, Franklin Dodge, though he was a little bit more loose with the rules, wasn't he? Yeah, and and you know at first, so she had a staple of prohibition agents, um, and she noticed Franklin Dodge right away. He was from a, a sort of prominent, um, illustrious uh, political family. He was well respected. He was uh, sort of rising through the ranks. He was proving himself on cases. He was willing to go undercover. Um, he was sort of willing to uh, use subterfuge to get results, and she she admired that about him. Um, and she sort of tapped him to be her ace of detectives. So when she decides to go after George Remus, she puts Franklin Dodge on the case um, and expects him to deliver quick and successful results. And he's successful, isn't he? Because they, they build a pretty impressive case against him, which I think involves the Jack Daniels distillery, doesn't it? Because that's the, the step too far. Yeah, and he eventually gets involved in the Jack Daniels distillery. But the first case against Remus, there's various court courtroom dealings um, throughout the years, uh, is, is in 1922, um, not long after the party. Franklin Dodge builds a case against Remus. There's a, a trial, and Remus is sentenced to prison. And it's only after Remus goes to prison that some of the, the more... Um, I said, should we say salacious, <laughs> salacious mm-hmm. events start happening with George Remus, Franklin Dodge and Imogene Remus. There was a wonderful, sordid, fantastic love triangle between the three of them. And can you imagine anything more upsetting than your wife starting to have an affair with the prohibition agent who put you in jail? You know, that's what George Remus was dealing with. Oh, my goodness. Scandalo. Very scandalous. <laughs> it was very scandalous indeed and causes various problems, not only for George Remus, but for Mabel Walker Willenbrandt, who starts to realize that maybe her ace of detectives wasn't so squeaky clean and upstanding after all. Oh, my goodness. So they do actually manage to put Remus away. He's a, a rare bootlegger that they actually manage to put in prison. They do. He goes down to uh, the Atlanta State Penitentiary um, in, in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, and it's kind of fascinating place because it's filled with, with bootleggers. In fact, there's sort of an entire wing of bootleggers that's called Million- <laughs> Millionaire's Row. Um, because 
all of them are filthy rich and they're able to sort of make the jail their own private, you know, it was like white collar jail back in the 1920s. Um, they, they had even more so, I think, they each had private suites. They had, um, they hired maids to come in and clean. They had uh, their own cook. They were able to hold dinner parties. They decorated their cells. It was sort of a, a, a nice retreat down there. Remus made particular friends with a, uh, a bootlegger named Willie Haar, who was a, in charge of a big Savannah bootlegging uh, conglomerate. Even though he was in these really luxurious for jail surroundings, um, Remus was tortured, though. And I think Remus was tortured because he was a control freak. And what do you lose in jail? You know, I mean, it's the ultimate losing of control. You don't have access to your outside life. So here he is in jail. He doesn't know what's going on with his bootlegging empire. He's worried about his money. He's worried about what Imogene might be doing with his money. And then he starts hearing rumors about Franklin Dodge, about the prohibition agent who put him in jail. And he starts hearing that Dodge is, uh, his wife is consorting with Franklin Dodge in perhaps most unsavory and unseemly ways. And this too starts weighing heavily on his mind. He does not want Imogene to be doing anything that he does not approve of. And one of those things is selling off everything that he's bought. Yeah, that's, that's um, <laughs> Imogene and Franklin Dodge sort of embark on their own business together, the business of ruining George Remus um, and ruining his empire. So while he's in prison, you know, um, she, she sort of uh, goes to town and, and uh, starts undoing the life that they made physically, uh, monetarily, emotionally. You know, she's and she's sort of joined in all of this by Franklin Dodge, who she really starts to uh, fall in love with. Wow. You, you do have to feel a little bit for Mabel in this because she she hung her hat on this case. It was proof of what you know her, her office was doing. And then all of those foundations start getting swept, swept out from underneath her. She really was in kind of a difficult situation. Um, you know, I, you can imagine the level of sexism she had to deal with just being a woman in a position of power in the 1920s. Uh, Any time somebody wrote about her in the newspaper, it wasn't, you know, talking about her work or the cases that she was working on. It was always accompanied by a mention of her physical appearance and what her physical appearance said about her personality. You know, her cold, hard eyes just signal her ruthless determination um, to, you know, she, she sort of unsexed herself. She wasn't a lady because she was so assertive and ambitious. Um, her ambition was looked upon as a bad thing. She, she often, you know, wondered why they always had to comment on her clothing and, you know, articles would spend, you know, paragraphs on the appearance of her hands and her eyes and the dresses she was wearing. And she wrote these very fascinating um, letters to her parents uh, talking about how she hated, hated this quote unquote girly, girly stuff. And why can't they just focus on the work she's doing and discuss her as if she were a man? And I forgot to mention something really fascinating about her too, that just makes her accomplishments all the more incredible. Mabel Walker Willembrandt was almost entirely deaf. Wow. Um, and she, she, so not only did she have this lack of experience, um, the sexism, people stacked against her, a, an unpopular law that she had to enforce, but she did all of this while, you know, straining to hear. And when she was in a courtroom, she could barely hear the, the arguments of her opposing counsel. And she, you know, spent an hour every morning uh, p- arranging her hair to cover her hearing aids. Um, because she did not, not want people to know right off the bat that she was also dealing with this physical handicap. And she wrote many letters to her parents. And she often also complained about this and, you know, saying things like, you know, they think I'm good now. 
what could I do if I were not hindered by this terrible, terrible handicap? And, and just sort of the frustration was so apparent in her words. It was really quite heartbreaking to go through all these letters and read them. She, she just sounds phenomenal. She sounds. Yeah, she was really remarkable. And of course, at this time, too, she was one of the most famous women in the world. Yeah. Today, we don't even know who, you know, nobody even remembers her name. Wow. Because so much of, of what you've described of her experience can be applied to X woman, whichever name you want to insert in power. Oh, absolutely. Now. Absolutely. It's depressing how little has changed in terms of women in politics. So incredible absolutely amazing sorry i've got nothing to add there i'm just going to sit here and be despondent <laughs> we're going to be despondent over here so look, let's go back to imaging okay so while while mabel is is dealing with all of that and and excelling in her field regardless of of how the press speak about her we've got imogene perhaps not living up to the trust that her husband might have placed in her was there any, was there any communication between the two of them while, while Remus was in prison? Could he do anything? Could he, did he know what was happening? He was aware of it. In fact, one of his fellow bootleggers, you know, told him of what he was hearing. Remus was furious, of course. And, and it would send these, you know, when Remus had such an incredible way with words and he would send these letters to Imogene. I print a lot of them in the books, um, basically just, you know, alternating between absolute despair, furious anger, and these really bizarre uh, professions of love. And, and uh, I can't even do justice to them. I'd have to read them aloud. I can't paraphrase and do, and do them justice. Just wonderful letters. And I was so fortunate to have a, a transcript. And uh, this transcript was about 5,500 pages. It took me four months to go through it all and create notes. And the transcript just had such incredible detailing. It's, it's why I was allowed to have so much great dialogue in this book, because it was all from this transcript. Um, a lot of Remus's letters to Imogene were in this transcript. And, and just some fantastic details. Um, one of my favorite details was that George Remus did not wear underwear. Mm. And of course, um, that was considered a great scandal. In, in 1920s, it was potentially the sign of an unsound mind. Um, somebody would have a, a dangerous mind if they if they went commando. It was a very, very scary thing. Um, and also, I had so much great uh, material for this book, firsthand material, that I could make a nonfiction whodunit, which is something I've always wanted to do. You know, a gun goes off in the beginning of the book, and you're not sure who gets shot. And I was able to manipulate the material to, to make it like, well, who, you know, a real, a real nonfiction whodunit, which um, was, was really incredible fun to write. One of the bits I, I love in the book is each chapter sort of interspaced with an interview from the transcript yeah. as they're building the case. And it's fascinating just hearing all of these different viewpoints as Abbott's building up the narrative as well. You're getting these little drops of, of character of viewpoint that just like you said it just makes it a fantastic who done that oh i really appreciate it yeah i i tried to use those to sort of uh increase the tension and also they presented insights into imogene's state of mind when all of this was going on which as you can imagine as the as the love triangle with franklin dodge was heating up um things were getting intense on on many fronts and and um you know all building to this really explosive explosive whodunit ending the events of the 6th of October, 1927 are vividly portrayed in your book. So that is the Eden Park incident where George and Imogene see each other for the last time. 
And we're specifically not going to say what happened. Thank you. Thank you. I know it's, you know, sure, it's nonfiction. If you want to Google it, you can, but it's much more fun to read the book. (laughs) Definitely. And we're not going to spoiler it. We're not here for spoilers. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's amazing. I've got your book out here as as we chat and we've, we've discussed a lot not really scratch the surface and that's the first half (laughs) (laughs) if if you haven't made it out from my voice dear listener i'm a real fan of this book i really am i've always wanted to ask you really that do you think that remus and imogen were really the two sides of the same coin they they probably were the the antithesis, you know, not the antithesis, but they were essentially the same person with that same drive and the same level of deviousness that just sort of fell into each other's orbit. I, I think that's a brilliant sight and I completely agree with it. I, I think that either one of them was capable of killing the other, either one of them was capable of screwing the other over, <laughs> either one of them was was sort of capable, as you say, is the, is the level of extreme uh, deviousness and, and sort of skullduggery and uh, just nastiness, uh, and which made them, in some ways, very despicable characters, but also made them a lot of fun. You just did not know what horrible thing that they might do next, and especially when they turned those those talents uh, toward each other. I, I I think they were fun villains, and I, I I have so many people writing to me saying that that they they defended one and not the other, they liked one and not the other, and and sort of debating who was who was the the more despicable character. Which um, personally, I love books full of despicable characters. I'm with you there, and I think I think if we were all honest with ourselves here at History Hack, we'd we'd admit that if history was full of a lot of really nice, honourable people, we'd get very bored talking yeah. about them very, very quickly. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so given the time that you spent with Remus in the Prohibition area, what do you think this noble experiment that, that was tried tells us about ourselves today? I think I said, as I said before, it, it tells us, again, that we really can't legislate vice. Um, I, I think a lot of, uh, you know, when I was researching Prohibition, it just made me think of also the push to legalize marijuana you know, it, it's it, again, like, you know, the war on drugs was a complete failure for obvious reasons, the same way prohibition was a complete failure. The most astounding thing about history sometimes is that it keeps repeating itself. You do the same thing and expecting different reactions at the definition of insanity. So it's sort of just interesting um, to go along there and, and see all the various parallels. And uh, as the marijuana fight was making its way through the courts and, and the court of public opinion as well. We kind of look back on that sort of roaring 20s period with probably slightly rosier tinted glasses than, than, than we should. I'm a big Dorothy Parker fan and you read her, her, her reviews of the various speakeasies that she was, she was finding in New York. You think that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. You read about what the rest of New York was like in the 20s. And you think, okay, maybe, yeah. maybe not. <laughs> but you know, what, do you, what do you think that the lasting impact of that period has been with, you know, with, with music, with lifestyle, our attitude to booze, because it, I think it still, it still reaches through the hundred years since. Yeah. Really interesting fact about the 1920s is that it was, it was the first decade of like the modernization of America. I think it's really the first decade where America came into its own. It was, it was sort of representing a new era of a flawed of political activity of modernity, you know, women finally had the right to vote after fighting for it for, you know, decades and decades and decades. There was a sort of um, the idea that that uh, women could enter the public sphere 
uh, in ways that they couldn't before. I found a lot of the, the mentality, you know, against flappers. There was a big flapper backlash. You know, today we celebrate flappers and how cool and how interesting and how daring they were back then. But back then they were also considered a great menace. In fact, there were newspapers calling, you know, railing against the quote unquote flapper menace. <laughs> uh, and how they were, how they were suddenly uh, sort of a threat to the, the, you know, to wholesome boys everywhere. And there were some great, you know, articles that even sort of portrayed them as sexual predators. You know, uh, one of my favorites is this, this love, you know, young little teenage couple dancing and, and it, the caption is, you know, beware the horrors of cheek dancing. You know, because they they were dancing cheek to cheek, it was it was something that was quite scandalous. Um, there were anti-flapper clubs at men's colleges. Just the scandalous idea that that women could suddenly act in ways that ho- had always been the domain of men, and that they expected to get away with it. Not only did they do it, but they expected to get away with it. And I think that's a lot of what people um, sort of found objectionable about Imogene Remus. Now, here was a woman, they actually called her a middle-aged flapper. You know, she was 39. <laughs> she was she was old enough to know better. And it, it was part of the sort of um, the, the idea that, that sh- this woman was was daring to act in ways that that only men should be allowed to act. And, and she did so without a thought of how it might reflect upon her. And she didn't care about anyone's opinion. And I think part of the 1920s spirit that lingers is that it was the first time that, that you know, a, a generation of women really um, sort of put themselves out there in, in such a, a fashion and, and uh, in a brazen way. And it was a trailblazing decade in that way. Gosh, I mean, she was really, really transgressive. And, and that's just the kind of women that we want to read about. She was. Now, I've, I've always had an affinity, a love of this time, because as, as many listeners will know, because I bang on about it enough, my favorite film is Some Like It Hot, which is set in Prohibition, Chicago. In your research, did you find speakeasies under funeral parlors? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they were everywhere. Answer this question very carefully. Yeah, <laughs> under funeral parlors. I don't know if I ever found one under a funeral parlor. I'm not saying that there haven't been. Or there, I'm sure there was, you know, but I, I read a lot about sort of just what people were doing inside their own homes. Um, the bathtub gin. And I have an anecdote in the book about a kid who ran, you know, like a 13-year-old kid or whoever ran running the hose from the upstairs bedroom down, you know, facilitating his family's uh, little homemade speakeasy and things like that. Wow. Um, but they were everywhere. Um, I'm sure they were, they were <laughs> speakeasy funeral homes. Um, so so I don't want to, I don't want to burst that dream. I'm sure, I'm sure they <laughs> We spoke a little bit about cocktails earlier. I, I have just looked up cor- corpse fries. There's one that's got Fernet in it, which I've got to try, actually. One of the, the things being a cocktail drinker in London is Prohibition gave us Harry Craddock. So we have the Savoy cocktail book because of Prohibition, because he left. That's right, yeah. And he came here, wrote wrote that. He came up with the corpse fries. came up with the White Lady as well, which is an amazing cocktail. It's interesting how many how many of these things have sort of worked their way down from something as simple as a martini to Hendrix selling their gin with teacups. Yeah. You know, these, these little, these little touches that sort of reach straight back to prohibition and the speakeasy. And Um, and of course there's a revival of speakeasy culture. There has been in recent, in recent years. Um, And uh, the sort of idea that you have to, you know, uh, go through a secret door and have a password and, 
Um, one of my favorite places in New York is actually inside of a hot dog shop. Yes, it's it's definitely. I think I think it's a cultural reverberation that still still endures. Oh yeah, there's uh, Kalu Kale has the Jub Jub upstairs, which back in the day you had to have a, your own key to get into, of which I have just over here. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a fantastic place. If you come over, we're going. The other one yes. is Candelaria in Paris, which you get into oh. through a taco shop. Can, will you send that to me because I'm going to Paris next year? Fingers crossed. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to check that out. Honestly, it's one of my favorite bars in the world because you get tacos and, and cocktails. What, 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 what more could you want? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds Super. absolutely amazing. Right. As, as I have you here, I'm going to ask you a question I've been wanting to ask for a while, which is about the new book. Oh. What can you tell us about Then Came the Devil? Uh, then Came the Devil is the title. We need a bit more than that. <laughs> It's very rare. I'll just say it. it's very rare that I um, have a title this early in, in working on something and a title I love so fiercely. It's, it's kind of perfect. But it is the story, true story, of course, of a group of settlers who tried to build a utopia in the Galapagos Islands in the 1930s, um, just as Hitler is coming to power and the world is sort of in financial collapse and things go awry. Uh, it becomes sort of an adult Lord of the Flies. Uh, is how I've been giving the, the shorthand version of it, Adult Lord of the Flies. But it begins with these two German exiles, a doctor and his patient, uh, who leave their spouses and, and, and settle on the small deserted island of Floriana that has quite a dark history with pirates and, and weird, mysterious deaths and failed settle, settlements and things like that. But they, give a, they try to make a go of it. They're joined by a German family uh, who's sort of salt of the earth, fleeing because Hitler is rising to power and they want to get out of the turmoil of Germany. And then finally, a woman calling herself the Baroness, uh, who arrives with two lovers and suddenly proclaims herself to be the, the um, Empress of Floriana and, and really, really treats the island as her own personal kingdom. She wants to make a Miami. She, her, she has big plans to turn it into Miami for American <laughs> tourists and millionaires to come visit, which of course does not go over well with the original settlers who were trying to um, create a life of, of, of peace and uh, escape civilization, not invite civilization over for, for cocktails on the beach. And so it, it, it goes horribly awry, brilliantly awry, fascinatingly awry. And the other part of this is that all of the American settlers uh, who started coming over during the 1930s, you know, 1930s, of course, was during the Great Depression, the time of great poverty and, and, um, and trouble in the United States. But if you had money, the cool thing to do was to build a, a big traveling yacht, an observatory, a science, science, a yacht capable of scientific exploration, and go down to the Galapagos Islands and um, be inspired by Charles Darwin uh, and, and collect various species and, and animals that don't exist anywhere else on the planet. And of course, these settlers became the most interesting animals of all. And the Americans kept coming back. And once the mysterious disappearances began happening, the Americans wanted to solve that mystery. So it's kind of, um, to me, it was a perfect book to really start writing during COVID and during quarantine. <laughs> you know, it was uh, the time when all of us wanted to, you know, escape to a desert island. And, <laughs> and the weird things that extreme isolation can do to your brain. You know, I think that's all part of it. Oh. I think we all have a little bit of experience. Of <laughs> yeah, but I'm having great fun with the research. It's really fascinating. And it's, uh, it's I think, going to be a, a, one of the a very fun book to write to actually sit down and start constructing. Can we invite you back now? Oh, I will be there. I will be there with 
<laughs> with prohibition cocktails and um I will I will come clothed though. A lot of them were nudists on the beach. I will I promise to put on some clothes. <laughs> That'll give our cartoonist Steve a, uh, a very very interesting job there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd like to see that sketch. <laughs> Oh my goodness. So The Ghosts of Eden Park is available now. We can get hold of this book. It is. It's uh, out in paperback, uh, available wherever wherever books are purchased. Um, I always encourage, uh, you know, buying from indie bookstores. Um, it's always important to support your ind- independent bookstore, uh, especially during times like this when people aren't shopping as much um, at out in brick and mortar stores um there's links online that you can you can you know find find the book there and if you read the book and enjoy it i'd love to hear from you um and especially tell me any fun stories of your own ancestors during prohibition um i always love hearing about people's histories abbott it has been a true delight to finally speak in person and have you on on history hack we i think Charlie, we've had a lot of fun with this one. Oh, it's been fantastic. I desperately want to read this book now. I think I'm going to be going on the on the History Hack bookshop and picking myself up a copy. Well, it was great fun talking to you both. I really love talking to people who appreciate history and, and have their own uh, interesting insights into it. Just if anyone wants to read a bit more about your books, where do they go? Um, you can go to my website. It's um, abbottkaler.com. That's A-B-B-O-T-T-K-A-H-L-E-R dot com. There's a link to my old Karen Abbott website on there where the, all the stuff about the Ghost of Eden Park is. And also some stuff about Then Came the Devil is on Abbott Keeler. So yeah, you want you want to check that out. And then like me, you can be bugging her for when it's going to be finished. <laughs> <laughs> Abbott, thank you so much. It has been a true delight. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, The 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer it streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.